Welcome to SciSection. I'm Kian and I'm bringing you this week's Sciences of the Week segment. We are here today with Ganahan, a medical student at McMaster University and the winner of the poster presentation contest at McMaster's Child Health Conference. Thanks for coming to our show. Not a problem. Happy to be here. All right, yeah, so we were supposed to have Janahan in our studio sometime in September, but, the COVID, but then COVID happened and our station closed and we were not recording any new episodes. But yeah, we are, we are finally back and this time with online interviews. <laughs> All right, so let's begin with some fun questions so our audience can get to know you a bit better. Uh, who is your favorite musician or singer or songwriter of all time? Ooh, okay, this is a tough one. Like, um, so before, again, before COVID, um, I go to a lot of concerts. I like live music is like a huge, huge like, hobby of mine. I just love going to as many as I can. So this was, this is a hard question because I don't think I can pick just one. I have like one for each type of thing that I love. So I think though, if I had to pick like a solo artist that for me musically was like most important, it'd be Hosier because he's the reason I started playing guitar. I think it was like six years ago or something. I started listening to his music and I was like, this is really cool. And I really like kind of like the, the patterns and styles of music. So that was like a big thing for me. And then around the same time I started for some, I don't know, it's like a complete 180, but started getting into like house music. And so, so then it was just like, so my first ever live concert that I went to was Avicii um, back in like 2014. It's been a really long time, but um, he, that was like so mind blowing to me that someone could do all of that from just like behind like this like tiny little stage thing. So I thought that was really cool. And yeah, the list goes on. I'd say like honorable mentions would be like Coldplay, James Bay, um, Codaline, yeah, like so many different amazing artists. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. What makes you laugh the most? Oh, uh, I think I really like it, it's it, my humor kind of range is like it's it depends on who I'm with. So I guess the the common factor there is I, it's the people. People make me laugh. Like I think so many people are so funny and don't realize that they're funny and like and they'll say things. And I'm like that was so hilarious and I can't believe like you don't realize how funny that was. So it ranges from like very like intricate, nuanced like humor where it's like super sarcastic because that's that's super fun. I, I've, I've noticed a lot like coming into med school that a lot of people I meet in med school have really sarcastic humor. And I think it's it's great because it's just it's so out of nowhere. And it's so like well thought out. And then it's also like I love like just, you know, flat out immature like dad jokes, like those kinds of things. It's, it's a wide range. I, I like to laugh and I'll take every opportunity. <laughs> That's awesome. And if you could meet slash work with any scientist dead or alive, who would it be? And it kind of fits the theme. Um, as you said, I was at the child health conference, but I think one scientist slash uh, physician, he's a psychiatrist that that's really interesting to me. And, and I've heard nothing but like amazing things. And I've, I've looked up some of the work he's done. Um, and I thought it was really inspirational because it's the kind of work that I want to be able to do, but um. Uh, Dr. Dan Offord. So he was a child psychiatrist, uh, clinician, research scientist. Um, and he, he focused on a lot of similar things that I look at, which is like mental and emotional development um, in children. And so he did like the first um, like Ontario child health study. And I thought it was just amazing that he was able to focus on so many different aspects of child development and growth. And then also just kind of in the community, something I thought he was really cool is he runs a camp or he, he did run a camp. Um, he passed away a, a while ago, I believe it might have been like 2004 or something like that. But he he had a camp to help disadvantaged children kind of find themselves and that sort of thing. And I thought that was really inspiration. I think he 
Um, coming from a bit of a social sciences background myself, I, I really liked that he brought that into child development and showed that. And it's, it's very similar to the lab kind of stuff that I do now and hope to continue doing. And also just some of the things I've heard about him just kind of remind me of my own supervisor, Dr. Schmidt, and who's also like, he works with child development research and um, socio-emotional development and that sort of thing. And just very like kind-hearted and cool people that I think I would love to have as a mentor because that's, they're, they're people who do really cool things that I want to uh, hopefully do something even close to doing, you know, in the future. That sounds great. You mentioned Childhood Compass, actually, that is a great segue to our next question. So you were selected as one of the winners of their poster presentation. Can you tell us about your research that was presented there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to say first of all, thank you to the Child Health Conference for letting me come out. To, that was like, I, I'd been kind of away from presenting research for a little bit up to that point. I hadn't really done anything since my fourth year of undergrad the year before. So it was, it was nice to get back out there. And I'm not gonna lie, it was a pretty big surprise to even win. But um, so the, the study I'm kind of working on now, it's, it's been a long time. So I've been on the study for about three years now. Um, and I'm working with Dr. Cheryl Chow um, and Dr. Uh, Louis Schmidt uh, in the psychology, neuroscience and behavior department. So that's where I did my undergrad and I'm continuing to do some work here. And the study we're, we're kind of focusing on is this pretty broad study that focuses on this concept of preoperative anxiety, which is the, the anxiety that children can experience in anticipation of surgery. Um, and it, it's a vast number. So in North America, that's estimated around 6 million children going into surgery are experiencing this type of anxiety every year. And it's been shown that experiencing that anxiety is going to affect the post-surgical outcomes. And so things like they'll have sleep disturbances, um, their recovery time overall tends to be increased, that sort of thing. And so kind of like I said, the lab focuses on social emotional development. And so one of those concepts is temperament, which is like a personality trait that relatively over time is stable. And we kind of looked at two different ends of temperament. So we look at um, shyness, which is, you know, typically what we see in um, very kind of reserved introverted type children and sociability. And um, previous research in our lab has kind of shown that those are pretty distinct traits and that they can ref reflect different ways children kind of interact with their surroundings. And so this is a really interesting part, I guess, of the study is it focuses on that aspect in conjunction with neurological measures. So um, your brain waves are essentially five different frequencies that kind of overlap over each other. And what we look at specifically for, for my portion of this is um, we look at the correlation between your slow and your fast waves, so your delta and beta waves. And basically what we've kind of been able to see in the past is that um, these frequencies or these waves are pretty asynchronous when you're not in a stressful situation. But as you anticipate a stressful event, um, they can synchronize. And so you start to see them kind of move in synchrony together. And so I was able to kind of look at if different individual differences in temperament are able to kind of predict that activity. And so is a shy child going to show more of that activity in a specific hemisphere of their brain and so on. And so we did some, um, we work with uh, children aged eight to 13 um, and we use a couple measures. So we use child specific measures. So they'll fill them out themselves. So the cheek and bus uh, shines and sociability scale. Um, there's also a few par um, parent measures. So like the CCTI and the EATQ. Um, which look at things like shyness, sociability, and inhibitory control. So inhibitory control is like the kind of the concept of, you know, can they uh, limit themselves in a situation of stress and so on. And so we kind of, so we use them, the Muse headbands. I know they're, they're pretty popular now. People use them for meditation. Uh, we are really lucky. We work with Muse pretty closely to develop like a child-sized one that's very flexible and easy to kind of take into the operating room. So uh, we would follow these children with uh, the headband on and record kind of their behaviors as well as their neurological activity um, about a week before their operation as well as 
um, leading into their operation room. So that, that mu stays on until they um, are uh, given anesthesia and then we take it off and um, we also follow up the children in post, um, post-op recovery and that sort of thing. And so what we were able to see is kind of this, so this concept of delta beta correlation, which is where those two waves kind of sync up in anticipation of stress. We saw that um, it's, it's typically associated with uh, children with low self ratings of uh, shyness um, and high self ratings of sociability in the right uh, hemisphere. And so typically there's this pattern that we see in the past of like left hemisphere is more associated with these approach tendencies, right with more avoidant, right? And so we, we would anticipate in a stressful situation on the right hemisphere, we see kind of these, these increases in delta beta correlation. But what was interesting was the group because it wasn't the children who are particularly shy that were showing this. It was the children who were rating higher on sociability. And so that's an interesting concept because you would anticipate like most often in, you know, and in, in kind of just anecdotally, when you look at shy children, they tend to be more reserved and, um, and kind of withdrawn from the situation where sociable children, you know, in, in the operating room, we see them, they're talking to people, cooperating, playing games, that sort of thing. But the neurological activity is very different. And so what we think this might reflect is like this kind of idea of um, self-modulation and being able to kind of um, uh, self-regulate in the face of novelty. So with shy children who are constantly faced with these um, anxiety-inducing situations, they may have developed better kind of uh, modulating abilities over time and are able to regulate themselves a little bit better than sociable children who, where this is a totally novel event and they don't know what to expect and it can be a little bit different. And so uh, we're still working on the study. There's still lots to do, um, of course, and it's, it's a very long-term study. We're looking into uh, kind of things in the future, like comparing um, this data using more continuous measures. You know, we you separate them into groups right now, but is it kind of a graded event? Is it like the more sociable you are, the more you experience this event and so on? Um, and I also want to look a little bit more into that left-right um, asymmetry that I was talking about a bit there, because that's also a very interesting thing we've seen in children in the past is left and right asymmetries is it, it, it can predict kind of their um, behaviors in the long term. It's also been associated like because temperament is a long term stable trait. It's been associated with different outcomes as well. So lots to work on. Uh, still very exciting research. I'm, I, I love it. I think it's probably the coolest thing I've ever worked on. But uh, yeah, that's that's like the the full kind of explanation of what we're doing right now. It's really interesting. Um, I knew about it based uh, from my experience at childhood conference, but now that I hear about it, it's really interesting, and it's uh, also really cool to see where it goes in future. So about yeah. that, I was wondering, do you know, are there uh, any environmental factors that can be manipulated within the operation rooms that can lower this anxiety in children? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a really great point that you brought up because, you know, whenever we're thinking about research, we're thinking about the like the applicable nature of it, right? And so one thing that's in development currently is um, an application. So that will actually kind of, that's children will be able to kind of access before their operation. And it'll show like the different tools that are involved, kind of a 3D simulation of the room that's available, because we're hoping that knowledge of the event can help reduce the anxiety, even if they are, even if it is a novel experience, at least some kind of pre-existing knowledge might be able to help mitigate those effects. So we're still working on that. There is like an RCT that's going to be, um, that, that was in, again, COVID, but <laughs> it was in, it was uh, underway and there are some things going on, but we're hoping to continue with this. I, I hope to continue with this project for a pretty long time, um, just to just really see where it goes. And yeah, environment is definitely a factor to consider too. Like personality is, influenced by a number of different things. It's influenced by um, parental attachment. It's influenced by the general environment of the child, their social circle, like all those sorts of things, right? And so it, it's not just an, an inherent biological thing, but I thought it was interesting that we could compare biological and 
these kind of social and um, interpersonal comparisons as well. All right, that is really cool. It's really cool. Now going to talk more about yourself and your educational path. Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, you're currently a medical student at McMaster University. So can you tell us about the significant changes that you noticed between undergraduate studies and professional school? Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's interesting. So I'm officially a second year um, as of like the beginning of September, which is pretty crazy because I'm, you know, McMaster is one of the only schools in the country where it's a three-year program. And so I'm very close to being done medical school and off to residency, I guess, even though there's still so, so much to do. But I think the, there, there are a couple big differences. Um, one, uh, and, I, and I think I want to attribute this to kind of a story I had from my first day of class. So I go from, you know, being an undergrad and knowing it, it wasn't a particularly large program. There's about a thousand people in it, but knowing so many of the administrators and knowing so much of like the, of so many of the graduate students and professors to coming to this, which is way bigger and a lot more people involved and not knowing anyone. And that was a huge jump. It felt like first year again. Um, and I was like, well, we don't, we, we get, we get some sort of a welcome week like you, like you had, but not, not to the degree of, you know, just pure activities and fun stuff all the time, right? We're starting <laughs> school too. And the pace is a big difference. Um, what we learn is very applied. And I thought that was a huge transition for me. And I didn't, I didn't realize I was going to love it so much. Like I, I've always kind of thrived in like the, the aspect of theoretical science and like that kind of thing, because it's, it's something I've grown up with. It's something I've known for a long time. It's something I can think well in. And all of a sudden I get tossed into medical school, which is you learn a bunch of theory, but you also have to know why that theory is important. Um, and you can't just forget it. Like I can't just forget these things I learned because you know, that it's very likely that something I see is going to show up again um, in clinical practice and clerkship and all those sorts of things. So um, it's, it's very interesting that that's a, that's a big change. I think one of the other interesting aspects is kind of the evaluation process has been a little bit different. So, you know, in undergrad, you're studying for a test. And again, this goes back to the, the real life application. You study for a test, but, you know, I, I get, we're all guilty of it. We all kind of memory dump once that test is done and then come back to it for the final. But in med, it's not like that. You learn things and you make mistakes because those mistakes are so important for your learning. Like something you, like nothing sticks, like for me personally, more than a mistake I've made. Like I will always remember that that was the reason that it was wrong. And it's the next time I see it, I'm like, no, I know how to catch it. And so that's been a big difference. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess like the one final kind of thing I would consider is it, there's a little bit of a shift of focus on kind of self-learning and like, you know, focusing on learning, learning things myself with my own schedule. Uh, Mac is like a PBL program. And so we also have that, like it's you know, we, we, we do a lot of learning outside the classroom and those sorts of opportunities are so big. Um, and also kind of focusing more on like the things that I personally want in career, in a career, like knowing that, you know, job satisfaction is a big thing for me, like that kind of thing, as opposed to, and, you know, working in very like good team environments, like those are important things. So learning those kinds of things is more of an applied skill. And it's, it's so huge in medicine that um, I think I'm very lucky that now I got to experience both. I got to experience the theoretical side of undergrad and now I'm experiencing this whole aspect again in medicine. That sounds awesome. And you also mentioned about self-learning. I'm sure a lot of the students can currently relate to that because of yeah. COVID and everything being online. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so we moved all of our stuff online now um, for the time being. And it's very interesting trying to learn clinical exams, um, <laughs> you know, how, to, how to move someone's elbow and knee to, to test for if it's locking out. And, that sort of thing like it, it's very interesting to kind of learn that without actually being able to do it um, <laughs> luckily my sister was home for a little bit so I was able to practice on her and 
that sort of thing. But you know, it's <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to get back. Honestly, I cannot wait yeah. to get back. You're all on the same page, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned about your experience in medical school. You were also uh, selected as the valedictorian at McMaster the year that you graduated. Um, a lot of us as students usually get fascinated by success without knowing all the challenges that were faced along the way. I'm sure being at your position right now, being a medical school student, um, being selected as valedictorian, doing research did not happen easily. So can you tell us about some of the challenges that you faced along the way as a student? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I'll, um, I'll say that undergrad was the four best years of my life, but far and away the four most challenging. Um, it was it was a huge shift um, in terms of what I kind of balancing my own interests with commitments. Um, I found that as the year, as the years went on between second, third and fourth year, my life became meetings and commitments and that sort of thing. And um, I had a bad reputation in the, in the uh, psych department as being like the last person in the building all the time was, and it was because I was just constantly there. Like I essentially I lived in that building. It was it was there, you know, up to like 18, 19 hours a day sometimes, which is not the greatest, but you know, it's it's a challenge, right? And and I think there are many times where I overextended. Um, because I think it's with undergrad, it's so important to try to find the things that you enjoy. Um, and that involves quite a bit of exploration and you know, being involved with different things and seeing if you like them or not. And and I think uh, that, that was a that was a big challenge. By fourth year, I was I was very tired all the time, uh, and it took it took quite a bit to kind of you know remind myself that as much as you know this these four years are going to conclude, and then there's a like there is a whole world after that, right? Like it's not like I'm there's no finish line at the end of undergrad. There's a lot to do, and so um, it was a big challenge to kind of learn to pace myself. And I think that's been a big focus for me in medicine so far was finding again like my interests and hobbies that I like and. Um, having COVID was in that regard actually um, a little bit helpful for me personally just because right before COVID hit I was at a point where I felt again very overextended um, and I thought that I needed a little bit of a break to come back and you know reevaluate like these are the things that are most important focus on those and pace yourself because it's very easy to kind of let yourself go and um, not uh, focus on your own health and your sleep patterns I'm like the the poster child for bad sleep hygiene, and I've I've honestly been trying to improve it, but it's it's one of those things that's become so ingrained with that with those challenges, and um, and also you know a lot of times there's a lot of luck that comes into play. I will say I'm very I got very lucky with a lot of things. I got very lucky to find the supervisors I found who still are so supportive of everything I do, and I I got very lucky to find groups of friends who understood that. I had a goal in mind and, you know, there were times where I wasn't available and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, sometimes it's just remembering that you have all of those challenges and it's okay. And you're not going to be able to do every single thing right or every single thing great. Just do what you can and, you know, <laughs> take care of yourself because it, it, it really comes back to bite you if you don't. So yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure students would appreciate hearing that from you. And for sure, it's really easy to get caught up in assignments, midterms, but at the end of the yeah. day, it really matters what is our passion for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so what advice do you have for students who are listening to this show right now and are interested in being at your position, pursuing research, hopefully medical school or uh, being a valedictorian? <laughs> yeah, um, I think for researching, and, and again, like kind of another story. So, um, you, you know, in second year, I specialized into P and B, and and that in itself was a was a very interesting kind of 
turn of events. I did not expect that to happen, but essentially I'd, I'd uh, streamed into Biochem. I took one look at the course list and Biochem is a fantastic program, nothing against it whatsoever, but I realized that the things I was interested in were things in PNB. And so I asked to switch in. And so on the first day I was like, whoa, I made this big switch. Like, I hope this was the right decision. Um, and on day two, I kind of just went through the department list of professors and I looked them up and Dr. Schmidt's name, like on day two of PNB caught like my attention right away. I saw the work he was doing and I was like this, like this is where I hope to end up. This is the kind of thing that I want to be doing. Um, and I guess what it really came down to at that point is I realized I'm like, don't settle um, for research. You know, I've had a lot of friends who um, pursue research that they love and you can see it in their work and you can see it in the way they talk about their work. And I think that's what makes the most valuable research, whether it's significant results or not, if you can learn something and truly appreciate all of the fine nuances of it, um, it's, that's going to be rewarding in and of itself. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of pride and take it like in, that you can take in your work. And, um, and I think it's really important not to settle on the things you want because you will always do better in something that you like. And so when I, when I decided, I was like, I need to do work with him. It was like right off the bat, I was like, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to work with him like for a very long time, actually it took a whole year. Um, and like this really, uh, funny kind of interaction where I essentially chased him down because I was on my way to my lab and then I saw him and I was like wait I sent you an email did, did you did you get it and like, <laughs> and like this whole sequence of events and uh, um, you know it's it, it was a really important thing there for me to realize not to settle but then also kind of and like you were saying in the in the aspect of medical school you know there's no perfect medical school um, applicant and I'm, I'm very fortunate to be here. Like, and, and I realize so much of this comes down to luck and um, you know, the, the, the many different things you didn't think were gonna help you that really did help you in the end, right? And so um, a lot of it comes down to luck and you know, being a part of the admissions committee this year as, like, as uh, one of the admissions reps, I've learned that there's so many candidates that are able to get there, right? And there's no perfect one. There's hundreds, possibly even thousands of well-suited, like well-deserving people. Um, and you just have to keep doing what you want to do. And if you have a passion for it, just keep trying. Um, and, you know, don't be afraid to take those extra steps and those ex extra risks that you think might pay off in the long run, because they, they honestly might, and they might not, but either way, it's a learning experience, right? Like, so. That's awesome. Thank you so much <laughs> for sharing that. Uh, we also have a tradition here at Science Section. We end our interviews by another fun question. So our oh, okay. final <laughs> question, if you were a novel, what would you be called and why? Uh, I was a novel. Um, I think uh, this is this is a band I used to listen to, but I like the name The Passion Pit, um, just because I'm so big on this idea of do things that you like to do, um, because I don't think that's an inherently selfish thing. I think it's something that produces its own results, right? Like when you like something and when you really enjoy it, you're going to put in more effort than if you're not motivated to do something. And Internal motivation is a big aspect for me. It's like there's, I, there's so many things that I just love doing that I never thought I would enjoy. For example, um, I never thought I'd pick up a guitar. I heard Hoser play a couple times and all of a sudden I'm like, no, I need to learn this. And now I've been playing acoustic and electric for like six years, just teaching myself, right? And um, things that I didn't expect that I'd enjoy. Like now I'm, I work on cars. That's like the thing that I've started to pick up again. I, I had a little bit of time working with my uncle um, in a body shop after my first year uh, when I was going through a little phase of, I don't know what I want to do with my life right now. 
and I, I realized I loved it. And so now I've got a little project in my, in my garage that I've been working on myself. And um, I think the, the reason I call it the passion pit is because just toss all your passion into everything you do, right? Like do the things that you're going to enjoy the most and find um, career choices and people that make you happy and are things that you can, you, you might get a little bit tired of over the long run because it's a very, it's a very long time that you'll be doing these things, but um, you know, that there are things that you can always find something new to kind of appreciate. And so I think, I think that's what I'd go with. The that passion. sounds awesome. That <laughs> sounds awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much again for coming to our show. We were, no really, on, we were really honored to have you. Um, that's it for this episode. Make sure to check out our social media at SciSection to get updated on our latest events, episode, and interviews. See you all next week.